What would you do if someone magically appeared in front of you and gave you earth-shattering news? And then we meet a man who believes it's his life mission to conquer the planet. From an early age, he set out with one goal, to be a one-man Illuminati. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a ton of stuff to cover, so we're going to slide right into this. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Devin. Devin, thank you so much for supporting the show. He's doing a little Macarena in the corner. He's doing that dance. It's the year 1997, apparently. But Devin's having a good old time doing that dance. Devin, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just spread the word about the show. That also really, really helps out a lot. But Devin, when you're done doing the Macarena, he's still doing it. He still has a couple more verses to go, but he's finally done. I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. Drive us out to brazil driving down the long lonely highway that stretches all the way from america to brazil is there one specifically we're going to marisol that's in sao paulo brazil also hit that little time travel button because we're going back to the year 1983 it's march 30th 1983 and it's late at night and as we're driving down the road we come across the man he's not named in this so let's call him gary Gary is a night watchman at his job, and he's just doing his thing. He's watching stuff. He's perfect for it. He has eyeballs. He was born to do this job. He's watching everything. And then right in front of him, a humanoid appears. This creature, for lack of a better word, it's not necessarily an alien or a cryptid, but this humanoid appears right in front of him, has dark skin and red crinkly hair. Like, that's kind of an odd combination to begin with. But also the fact that he magically appeared in front of you. uh. And this stranger is standing right in front of Gary and says, We have a kid. Her name is Azalea. Figure disappears into a puff of smoke. You don't see that very often. You don't see that very often outside of a Looney Tune cartoon. Person appears, disappears in a puff of smoke. Says, we have a child together named Azalea. That's it. That's the whole story. Now, what's funny is that that story is more perplexing than so much other stuff we talk about on this show. Because if it had been a gray alien, if it had been a ghost, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, you have mythology. You can plug that into context. You're like, oh, here's a ghost. I can do research and maybe the place used to be haunted or it's still haunted. There's a ghost here, but maybe someone tragically died here. If it was an alien that would appear, you go, oh, human hybrid experiments. Like I must have been abducted at some point. Just a dude showing up saying, hey, we have a kid together <laughs> disappearing. That's way more perplexing. There's no way to put that into the catalog of paranormal events. The less context, the more bizarre. Like, where do you go from there? How would you ever research that? How would you deal with that? Like, if an alien showed up and was like, oh, I abducted you, like, a long time ago, and we had a baby together, I'd want to see the baby. Um, Maybe hold it, depending on how weird it looked. I'm like, gross. That's a gross-looking baby. They're like, but it's yours. Don't you have an attachment to it? I'm like, no. Super, Super gross, baby. You could probably, like, explore it more, but just some dude with crinkly red hair showing up and be like what 
And then getting the puff of smoke. I don't know why I keep getting like fixated on the fact that there's just like someone saying we have a kid. He had disappeared in a puff of smoke. That's super weird in and of itself. I wonder what if a ghost can have a kid with a person. We've covered stuff like that before with crazy women saying that ghosts have impregnated them, but they were nuts. Outside of people being nuts, could you have a ghost baby? Could you have a if you can bang an alien and have a alien baby and apparently you can bang this dude you can bang this dude if you want a kid named azalea could you bang a ghost could you have a, not talking about succubi either like an actual ghost like some woman who died in the 1800s who looks kind of you know kind of hot in that old pioneer clothing and then like can you bang her <laughs> that is the immortal question that is truly what every paranormal investigator really wants to know i don't care about orbs evp meters nothing like that can i bang it can I have sex with a ghost? And preferably, like, if it's preferably a living baby, which would be hilarious to watch a ghost walk around. She's like, oh, I'm getting pregnant. And he's just like a full on little baby person that's totally solid inside of a ghost. Keeps falling out. She's like, oh, this is going to be a long nine months. He has to hold it in. Or barring a real life baby from a ghost. And maybe the baby has like ghostly eyes. Like the eyes are like a ghost blue. Barring a human baby born out of a ghost casper <laughs> i want to if i'm gonna bang a ghost lady if she gives birth to casper that'd be dope because casper was pretty cool like i mean for what he was he was a he was a bad cartoon but out of all that era of just like really cheesy cartoons you could kick it with casper <laughs> that is my that is my side tracking from that um, otherwise bizarre story. What would you do if someone just appeared in front of you and said they had a kid? Obviously, in real life, you'd be like, no, we don't. But if they magically could appear and disappear in a puff of smoke, you'd kind of wonder if maybe at some point you had banged a dude and you had a daughter. And then what? Again, super perplexing. The less information, the scarier, really. Maybe someday he'll meet Azalea. Devin, let's put you in that carboner copter. We are going to fly on out. To Florida. Now, Devin, I chose Devin to be the pilot on this episode because he has the military chops that are going to be needed to keep us safe during this episode. So everyone gear up. Put on your BDUs. Get your guns cocked. Make sure no teachers are putting bullets in backwards. That's yesterday's episode if you didn't hear that one. All of our bullets are in the right way. We are flying out to Florida. Devin's giving us the A-OK because he is bringing us now over the business of Frank Amodio. It's a very unassuming business just sitting there. You wouldn't even think anything of it as you're flying 15,000 feet over it. You wouldn't think anything of it if you were walking into the front door. But this business is owned by a man who will someday conquer the planet. Before we get started here, I got to give a shout out to two people. First off, the person who recommended this story to me, Der Grobman on YouTube. He recommended it to me about midnight the other night, and I was up till about 2, 2.30 reading this article. Very, very fascinating story. Thank you so much for sending it over. And I want to give a shout out to the author of the article, Matthew B. Cox. He wrote an article called It's Insanity. The Bizarre Story of a Bipolar Megalomaniac's Insane Plan for Total World Domination. That's not clickbait. That's what we're going to be talking about. And Matthew did an amazing job. He did a ton of interviews with this guy. Wanted to give a tip of the hat to him. Most of the information I got is from his article. 
I had other sources as well, but as far as all of the interviews and things like that, Matthew did an amazing job. Frank Amodio knew from childhood that he was destined to rule mankind. Divinely destined. It's not just like he woke up one day and goes, hey, I want to do that. He's pointing at a globe. Someday I'm going to own that. As a toddler, these are stories that he told at least. As a toddler, he walked away from his daycare. I don't need you, daycare. You suck. Little toddler dude's walking out in his little jammy jams. He walks into traffic. You're like, Jason, this guy's supposed to rule the planet. He doesn't even know what traffic is. Well, he is a toddler. You would think he would die. Because generally when toddlers walk into traffic, it's not good. It's not a happy ending. Eventually, a good Samaritan found him. After he ran over him a couple times, he's like, uh-oh. But he just ran over the footsie part of his pajamas. Then it hit him. Takes him, drops him off at his parents' house. At age six, he was walking along the train tracks, walking tight rope style on the train track. And he's walking, and then all of a sudden, he hears a voice in his head saying, get off the tracks. So he got off the tracks, and a train drove by. Almost killed him. If he hadn't heard that voice in his head, or if he hadn't heard the sound of an 800-ton mechanical beast from behind him. I don't know if he was listening to Walkman. I don't think the voice in your head is really what you need to listen to. You need to listen to the choo-choo, chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga. Three years later, so when he was nine, he said that his aunt was like, Hey, Frank, you want to come hang out? <laughs> I forgot your name and looked over at my notes. Hey, my favorite nephew, uh, Frank, why don't you come over to my place and let's just like hang out, do a bunch of stuff, you know, like walk on train tracks. We know you like that. I got a lot of traffic by my house. And Frank's like, nah, I'm good. Because he actually hears a voice in his head saying, don't go to your aunt's house tonight. And then the next morning, his aunt was murdered and her body was found in a dumpster. She'd been murdered and her fiancé's best friend killed her. So basically, he was having these near misses. And the fact that he was surviving these things meant that God was willing him towards a greater destiny. And also, he should probably get his hearing checked because he didn't hear a train coming. And as he gets older, he has a pretty varied life. He was like, going to college, double major, doing all this stuff. At one point, the CIA was trying to recruit him, but then his dad fell ill. So a lot of this story makes you think that this guy is making this stuff up. Because we cover blowhards all the time on this show. But early in life, he's telling these stories. I got to skim over a bunch of the stuff, because it's just like he was a lawyer, and he was a guy. It's a very, very fascinating story, and you can read the article for more in-depth stuff. But I want to kind of get to the meat of the conspiracy realm of it. In college, he comes up with a plan called Capital Genesis, which is described basically as benevolent capitalist fascism. The world would be run by corporations, and he would run the corporations. He basically wanted to push out governments and politicians and create a corporate structure that would rule the planet. He said, quote, By 2012, I expect I'll have offices within one hour of every human alive everywhere. And the thing was, is he was a good businessman. He knew what he was doing. But he was also, this is where we start to get an allegedly type of stuff, but he was also really good at hiding numbers from his time as an accountant. So he set up, this is how his businesses worked. He would find businesses that were having financial trouble because he was a bankruptcy attorney by trade before he started this thing. He would find companies that own a bunch of money to the IRS and then go to the IRS and say, hey, we'll set up a payment plan. We'll pay, make these payments every month or every year, however the plan was set up. Or 
I can gut it right now. I can declare bankruptcy right now and you'll never get the money. And IRS is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'd rather have some money later than no money now. So they'll work it. And while he's doing all this stuff, he realizes that he can skim IRS money from the payroll tax of all these different corporations. So he'd buy a company, they'd pay payroll tax, but he would take tax dollars from the payroll tax because the IRS is thinking they're going to get paid in the future. Anyways, it was this really weird financial scheme he had going on. So not only was he getting money from the business as it was continuing to turn a profit because he's revitalizing it, he was also getting extra money from all of these companies skimming a little bit out of their payroll taxes. Because the thing is, a dictator needs money. So he wasn't just investing in businesses to help people out or to make short-term goals. He was going to use this money to fund his plan of world domination. This all kind of starts to pick up around 2005. So first he's buying little firms here and there. Here's a little shop in Florida that needs some help. Here's some place in Saskatchewan that needs bigger investment. He's building up this portfolio of money-making businesses. Then he starts to invest in tactical operations. He was basically investing in security companies that were then being contracted out by the U.S. government to go do things in other countries that the U.S. government didn't want to be tied to. Snatch and grab operations. You send some people over there, you send six dudes, 12 dudes, whatever it is, they'll grab a drug lord off the street, grab a witness that the government wants, snatch up a terrorist, take him back. So he wasn't just running a bunch of kinkos on the side. He was actually starting to build a security operation. He buys a couple fighter jets. So right there, right there, you should start getting alarm bells. Sure, people do have private security concerns, but he starts buying fighter jets. He starts to invest in a factory in Russia. He's going global. He invests in a factory in Russia. He knows that he needs to be all over the planet if he wants to take over the planet. He's going, he's very successful. He gets this reputation of taking businesses that otherwise would fail and revitalizing them. Sure, he's skimming a little off of the back end, but nobody really knows that. And even the people who work with him, some people kind of knew what he was doing. Everybody knew that he had bigger ambitions. And I should touch on this as well. I touched on it in the headline. He is bipolar. He's manic depressive. So the people at his job would see him like in this like raw, raw, super energetic. This is the way the company's going. Let's all get together. And he'd really get everyone all psyched up. But then he would fall into a deep depression. Early in his career, it seemed to be worse. He would just shut down for weeks at a time. But now he's on a roll. He's just constantly pushing forward. And people who work for the companies, they're all making a ton of money. They know he keeps talking about, like, taking over the world. They're like, dude, it's kind of weird. You keep wearing that Cobra Commander outfit to work. But we're all making money. What could go wrong? The Democratic Republic of Congo was having this big election. And because of his reputation of kind of being able to save companies, being really good with numbers... A one of the political parties reached out to him and said, hey, listen, there's like 32 people running for president of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We would like you to come out and talk to us and see, give us some ideas on how we can, if we win, how we can revitalize the country. And then we'll use that as our political platform. And it's funny, let me take a break here real quick. This story should show more than anything the power of the law of attraction. There's tons of successful businessmen all over the world that would never be contacted by the Democratic Republic of Congo. But because he was so driven on this idea of having this political power, it's, it's 100% law of attraction. I'll throw, I know that sounds mystical to some of you guys, but 
he's so focused on that, he's putting out into the universe, this is the type of connections he wants, and he gets them. Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the political parties, reaches out to him, and he goes, yeah, sure. He goes over there, and he sets up this plan with them, and he goes, okay, here's what, here's what you guys should do. Take all the mineral wealth in the Democratic Republic of Congo, because there's a ton of it. It's worth, like, billions, if not a trillion dollars worth of minerals over there. We're going to sell the mineral rights to uh, Middle Eastern investors. They'll invest in the country. They'll build up the infrastructure. It'll be great. It'll be great for everybody. Everyone gets money. Everything gets stabilized over here. But because he's talking about bringing in foreign investments, because he's a foreigner himself, he has a security team on the ground to work with this political party. They get arrested because they're a bunch of foreigners. They're talking about bringing in outside interests and people are super suspicious of them. And they're all thrown in jail. At this point, Frank's really upset because this is almost like a black eye on this idea that he's going to rule the world someday. Like his people are actually being detained. He ends up calling the State Department, the United States State Department. He's like, you guys got to get my people out of there. They were being used as a propaganda tool. Every so often they were being marched out, put guns to their head. And then, haha, we're not going to kill you today and take them back into the jail. So that's a war crime. You can't actually do mock executions. You, oddly enough, can do real executions. But the State Department is trying to get this all settled. And Frank tells the State Department, I have... A hundred men ready to go. I have Hellfire missiles. If they try to do anything to my contractors, I'm going to level the city. And his contractors are eventually let go. They leave the country. So after that, this is his first big public step into international politics. It's actually a news story. And people are going, how did this guy in Florida assemble a bunch of shock troopers and Hellfire missiles and everything like that? How did this go on? But again, it's not raising red flags. NATO says, you know what? We kind of we like your style. How would you, with all your business acumen and your security connections, like to actually host a NATO meeting that we're going to have in Latvia? Now, of course, he's like, oh, <laughs> you had me at Latvia. I was totally down. They're like, that was the last word in the sentence. He goes, it doesn't matter. I'm totally down with that. He also meets with President Bush, President George Bush Jr. at the time. He meets with him. They have a meeting about this whole thing that happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Apparently, also at that meeting, George Bush goes, walks up to Frank and goes, Hey, I, heard, I read the after-action report about Congo, and I heard what you said about leveling the city. You're my kind of guy. He's all elbowing him in the ribs. <laughs> we both love blowing up cities, don't we? So Frank is on his way, man. The president thinks he's a pretty dope dude. He's getting invited to NATO. He has this small security force. Everything's going great. But the people he was backing in the Democratic Republic of Congo election, they lost. The guy, the president who had his people arrested, won. But Frank, never passing up an opportunity to take over the planet, Frank tells the president of Congo, yeah, you won and I backed this other guy, but let me tell you my plan. And he lays out that idea about selling the rights to the Middle East. And they're like, that actually is a good idea. We need a lot of money invested. And the president goes, you know what I really have a problem with is there is a ethnic group in the area called the Bujimai. He goes, they're pretty cool dudes, but no one really likes them. They're kind of like this impoverished part of our country. They're basically the equivalent of an American hillbilly. He goes, no one likes them. They're kind of out there all by themselves. I would really like to see them lifted up as well so we can have a more unified country because there's like millions of them. And so Frank's sitting there and he goes, hey, tell you what, I got a plan. I will guarantee each of them military training. I have the people who can do it. I have the resources to do it. I will train all the men of the Bujimai region. There's two million of them. 
There's two million of them. So basically what you're doing is for free, because I'm going to train them. You're going to have a two million man army to help stabilize your country. And then later can help stabilize other parts of Africa as well. President's like, that sounds amazing. And Frank, Frank knows what he's doing. He's building a two million man army for him. This is the start of Capital Genesis. This story is 100% true, and it happened just a few years ago. And it would have kept going on. He would have had this little building in Florida and done all of these things, made all these maneuvers, start an army, had it not been for one conversation. In Latvia, at the NATO summit that he helped organize, someone goes, hey, so what happened? What exactly happened in the Congo? Like, I read in the newspaper, like, your people got kidnapped, and they were there for a couple days, and apparently you made some moves, and the State Department made some moves, and they all got let go. What actually happened? And he begins talking to all of these NATO representatives about capital genesis, about his plan to take over the world. Now, uh, people will say that. Depeche Mode will write songs about it. It happens. But this guy has Hellfire missiles. This guy has a small amount of troops that he already threatened to level a city. But while he's at this meeting, he says, he's going through the plan, quote, once I've created a military, a million Bujimai soldiers, I'll use them to stabilize Central Africa. Then someone asked, what's your objective? Frank says, well, obviously, once I've built up my peacekeeping force, I plan on taking all of Africa. And then he goes on to say he's going to continue to build his military. He goes, a five million man military capable of policing the planet. We won't need NATO anymore. Probably not the best thing to say at a NATO meeting. Probably not the best thing to say at all. He laid out his plan. He thought the plan was so genius, anyone who heard it would have to go along with it. Capital Genesis. A worldwide corporation ran by him, and he had already been taking his first steps. Now, he ends up leaving the NATO summit later. It's not like he's like, oh, gotta go, once he realized that he revealed his plans. The NATO summit goes as normal. But by the time he's headed back home to Florida on his private jet, there are already phone calls to the United States government. Because people are starting to put two and two together. One, he has what seems like unlimited wealth. Two, he already has a private security... He already has uh, quite a few private security forces. But one was ready to go with Hellfire missiles. Three, he owns fighter jets. These are all red flags that should have popped up earlier. But the biggest one, four, that company I said that he invested in in Russia, it was a factory that up until a few years before he invested in it, built intercontinental ballistic missiles. By the time his plane landed in Florida... His companies are already being hit with subpoenas. The government is sending out people, figure out something that this guy's doing illegal because something is wrong. And they tried over and over and over again, and they could find nothing. Even though he was doing this thing where he was kind of digging into the payroll taxes, that money was going to be paid back eventually. He was saying, we owe you $10 million in taxes I'll declare bankruptcy, or you can just pay you later, IRS. They go, yeah, they owed for past taxes. He was taking out current taxes. It it was this weird scheme. It sounds pretty illegal. It probably was illegal, but the government couldn't prove that he was doing anything illegal. He hadn't done anything illegal as far as they could tell. July 2008, they still can't find anything that's going on with this guy. But they do get his lawyer... They are somehow able, this is really interesting, this article I read, 
They lean on his lawyer. I don't know what they found on this lawyer. I don't know if the lawyer is a good guy and developed a conscience and, you know, didn't want to take over the planet or if they found something on him. I'm not for sure. But the but the government leaned really, really hard on his lawyer. His lawyer goes, listen, you got to take a plea deal for this. Take a plea deal for pulling money, doing this tax scheme, do a couple of years in prison. Not a big deal. Frank won't do it. The lawyer goes, okay. Well, you know that whole manic depressive bipolar thing you have going on? I'm going to have you ruled incompetent by a judge, and then the decision isn't yours. And you would think that it would be very, very hard to do. No, no, not in this dude's case, because the government already wanted to clamp down on him. The lawyer has Frank, this guy who owns all these companies, declared incompetent and sent to the McLean Psychiatric Hospital. At that point, he is diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which he does have. Earlier in life, they didn't really know what that was. Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that wasn't really a thing. You were just depressed. And that even wasn't a medical condition. He was medicated very heavily. September 22nd, 2008, so just a couple months later, his lawyer has Frank in court and says, hey, my client is now ready to plead guilty. He's competent. We know he was in that psychiatric hospital for a while. He's now ready to plead guilty to these charges, Your Honor. And the judge looks over at Frank, and he's literally drooling as he's sitting there. He's so pumped, full of antipsychotic medicine, he's drooling in court. The judge is like, okay, I'll take it, I'll take it. Yeah, he seems competent. In total, he owned 70 companies and had taken a total of $64 million. In the end, through all sorts of other shenanigans that were going on, in the end, he did get sentenced... Because he pled guilty, he was competent, even though he's all, uh... He pled guilty, he got 22 years in prison. He's still alive, he's still in prison. For quite a few years, he was drugged out of his mind. Not by choice. The prison authorities were keeping him on drugs. And then, when he finally gets off the drugs, it had been a couple years. He's a lawyer, by trade. He starts to realize stuff. He goes, first off, I was a ward of the state. When I was declared incompetent, I was a ward of the state. And by not having my own... It doesn't matter whether or not I'm competent or someone else says I'm competent. If I'm still a ward of the state, I can't take a plea deal. Two, when I was declared incompetent, there was someone else who was appointed as my guardian. It wasn't a lawyer. They should have been present as well when I took the plea deal. Even the judge said, had I known he was a ward of the state, I can't take a plea deal if someone's a ward of the state. You should have realized the guy was drooling. That should have been your first thing. But he goes, maybe there was just a really juicy steak and I couldn't see. So the judge is like, maybe that's why he was drooling. The government actually did take a look at all of his findings. Frank puts this thing together and goes to the government. Look at all these problems with the trial. And my lawyer didn't have my best interest in mind. A lawyer has to have your best interest in mind. My lawyer was actively working to get me thrown in jail. So this stinks. I need to be let out. And the government looks at it and they go, you're right. You're right. However, you only have one year after you are sentenced to argue that your lawyer didn't have your best interest in mind. It's like five years later. He's like, yeah, but I was trucked up. The government was pumping me full of drugs. And they're like, nope, that's the deadline, dude. So Frank still sits in prison. Now actually runs a law firm in prison. He's constantly getting inmate sentences reduced. Some of them released. He has other inmates working as paralegals. Oddly enough, he stole about $60 million from the government through that IRS scheme. He saved the government $83 million in housing criminals by getting them let off. To wrap this up, 
let's go back to Matthew Cox's article here. I'm going to read you this passage from it, and it really should give you an idea of where Frank's mind is at right now. Matthew asks, quote, How long did you think it was going to take for you to conquer the world and become emperor? Frank says, You keep speaking in past tense. I'm going to do this. I will be emperor. I will be emperor. When Matthew says, You know, you're kind of getting, getting older. Frank completely dismisses that. There's still time. Moses started when he was 80. When I walk out of those gates, my legions and I will march on Washington, burn the miserable Constitution, and the president will kneel at my feet. My flag will fly above every city in this country, and then the world. It's interesting to look at a megalomaniac who failed. Which, to be fair, I guess a lot of them do. But to have someone who actually dedicates their life to trying to take over the planet, every edgy teenager imagines it, but he actually took steps to do it. Actually may have succeeded given a long enough time. The idea of him marching out of jail with his legions and the president kneeling before him, that's obviously a delusion of grandeur now. But if his plan had been able to continue... And he had amassed a five-million-man army in Africa. I don't know if the president would be kissing his feet, but he'd definitely be in a position of immense power. And this is the type of person I talk about when I always talk about the Illuminati, when I say I don't think there's one group controlling the planet. I think there's dozens, if not hundreds, of smaller groups, each maneuvering their way, each one trying to conquer the planet. But their alliances and their infighting and all this stuff going on, and that represents the chaos of the world. This is what I'm talking about. This man became a key player. He was just some college student who was a lawyer for a while. He kind of bumbled his way through life and ended up coming very close to being a dominant player in world politics. This is the Illuminati. It's people like this. And whether a couple of them team up to form a group or you just have a lot of lone wolves out there. These are the people that can really affect world politics. It doesn't take a group to control a television station. It just takes a guy like this to own a television station. And the creepiest thing is that this is chaos. This is full chaos. It's almost more comforting to think that one group rules the entire planet because that way you can focus all your energy on one group and everything that goes wrong you can... Ascribe it to that one group. But to know that there are people like this in our lifetime who are able to maneuver this, and the only thing that tripped him up was him opening his mouth in front of the wrong people. That's terrifying. Because that's pure chaos. Had he gotten an ICBM, and he was in a manic episode, and he's threatening to destroy cities, raw chaos. Knowing someone is in control, even if they are evil, can be more comforting than thinking that random people can just pop up by a missile factory and start taking over the world. That's why more people want to believe that 9-11 was an inside job versus some dude 3,000 miles away gets 19 people to change the scope of American history. Because chaos is terrifying and control is comforting. That's why people like Frank scared the government into doing whatever it would take to get him behind bars. Because people like Frank are true loose cannons. And he's not alone. 
there's probably thousands of other people out there just like him who not only dream about taking over the world, we all do that, reshaping the world in our image, but knowing how to do it. The government was able to stop Frank. Will they be able to stop the next one? And the next one? And the next one? Or will there be a day when you wake up, a new flag is flying over your city? You see the president on bended knees, kissing the foot of a man you never even knew existed, but is now the king of the planet. We may think that sounds far-fetched, but to Frank, it's just a matter of time. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.